We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. I often post on various audio forums, and I want to take this time to just thank them. In no particular order, they are audioscienceReview.com, audioroundtable.com, audiocircle.com, audiophilestyle.com, avnirvana.com, diyaudio.com, gearspace.com, and the Parts Express Forum. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate your viewership and enjoy. Today on the Intellectual People Podcast, I have Clayton Shaw from Spatial Audio Lab. How are you doing today, Clayton? Great. Thank, thanks for having me, Jason. Thank, appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Clayton, what is Spatial Audio Lab? It is the latest, I guess, latest company in a series of companies over a long stretch of time that I guess you could just say I'm a you know, a lifer. I, I got this, I got the audio bug and we can get into that real early on. Um, I think the first speaker I built was when I was 12 and I'm 64 now, so you can do the math. So I think the um, spatial um, is, um, you know, has a specific focus though. It's not just the latest and, and incorporates everything that we've learned over a long period of time, but there's a there's a mission involved, which is um, about 30 years ago or so. I had already kind of come to the conclusion that I just personally, and it doesn't matter if anybody else agrees or not. I just got to the point where I wasn't happy developing box speakers. I just don't like the sound. I just don't think they sound like live music to me because I grew up around live music, and so I accidentally ran into an open baffle scenario. And when I heard it it had a pretty big effect on me. So I didn't immediately manufacture open baffle speakers. Uh, that was when uh, we can get into the timeline. But sure. anyway, that's all that spatial is really about is, is to uh, popularize and commercialize a well done open baffle speaker that's affordable enough to where people can actually buy it. You've been building speakers now for 52 years, according to your uh, timeline that you just gave us. <laughs> Were you always into music? Uh, I would say, yeah. I, here's, the, I think the, um, it took me a long time to look around or turn around and realize what my influences were. Because when you're younger, you, you tend to think it's all about you. You're very self-absorbed. So I was thinking about, well, I do this because of what I like or whatever. But in reality, uh, looking back, the, what happened what really uh, set me up for this is my family. My mother was a music teacher and played piano. And um, my sister, who's not much older, like a year and a half older, she was kind of a child prodigy piano. She ended up being a professor of music uh, in Hong Kong, for example, later on. But when she was a kid, I, I guess she was probably under a lot of pressure because my mom was a music teacher, but she was on the piano doing practicing before I woke up every morning, uh, every weekday morning. So I woke up to a baby grand about probably 25 or 30 feet away from my bedroom. 
And I just that completely um, just really irritating because, you know, just bang, all this, you know, banging going on. And um, and when kids are learning that the piano doesn't doesn't sound very good, you know, um, but that went on, I guess, all the way through uh, high school uh, or close to it. Maybe not all the way, but, you know, for probably 10 years or some number like that, I was listening to piano all of the time but not playing it. I never actually picked up an instrument or played an instrument. Um, I, but just absolutely love music because I grew up around it and it was kind of in our DNA. I mean, our whole family was into that. And my dad in a weird sort of way that I didn't realize either till later is that he was kind of an audiophile uh, and I didn't, uh, not consciously, but um, he, he was, he was born in 1925 and was, um, went to went to uh, Germany in the Second World War right at the tail end of it. It was literally ending. Um, I think while he was over there, they they dropped the bombs on Japan. So it was over while he was there. He was actually in France when they did that. But anyway, um, he was around all this cool stuff and had and then and saw German audio equipment uh, and later imported a, a Grundig all in one vacuum tube very high-end unit. You know, it, it was uh, vacuum tube preamp, power amp, electrostatic tweeters, really. And, you know, and I don't think I necessarily appreciated it originally, but I think the combination of the hardware thing and growing up in a music family, I gravitated towards the uh, the mechanical and technological and electrical things. I mean, that's just my, you know, I'm just not that kind of person to be a, a musician. <clears throat> So basically, um, I think a million other guys would probably have a similar story, though. It's not all that unique, sure. um, you know, but um, I just start tinkering because we I was fortunate. I grew up literally on the campus of University of Oklahoma, which is a pretty large university and all. And so there's a lot of commercial activity on the perimeter of it. And there was a, an allied radio shack there that was huge. And they were mainly selling parts, like drivers. They sell complete crossovers, crossover parts, Keith kits, um, along with all the other junk. But back in those days, they really were. You bought, you built your own equipment uh, in many, you know, instances. So that allowed me to literally ride my bike over to the over there and buy a woofer. And so I I would uh, tinker around and build things to see to try to understand what was how they worked, because I was just I was just into this, you know, um, but when you're 12 or 13, kind of in that age range, curiosity is there, but you don't have any um, knowledge base to work from. So everything is just a matter of messing around and playing and learning. But I think that's a good way to learn, though. I think that's actually a smart way. You might have done that with with cars and mechanical things. I, I think Absolutely. not knowing anything initially is actually kind of a, yep. a good thing in its own way. But what interest um, you, you know, when you were tinkering to build your own speakers? What what was the driving factor that was interesting to you? Um, I hadn't thought of that, but I my my guess right off the top of my head was that that was in the early seventies and it was rock and roll time. Um, the um, the stereo system that we had at the house, like that Grundig, it sounded good, but it didn't have any real impact. Okay. And so, but, but I was listening to, you know, Zeppelin and, um, and that kind of stuff and Jethro Tull and all that. And 
there just wasn't anything that a family would own that would reproduce that. So that I think initially, because I can tell you why, is that the very first thing that I built had a 15 inch woofer in it um, and a horn tweeter. And this is this is in like 1972, wow. right? Which is not weird. I mean, they sold all those kind of drivers because, sure. I mean, audio came from movie theater industry. Um, so I was essentially trying to build, not knowing it, but building a movie theater speaker so that I could get the rock and roll experience, <laughs> right? And um, surprisingly enough, after I screwed around for a while, um, it sounded pretty good. At least I thought it did at that time. Uh, might not now, but. Um, and I, a joke I tell guys um, that was I had that I realized later was kind of funny was this speaker that we're talking about. It was about I was I was actually trying to reproduce the the uh, voice of the theater uh, Altec speaker, and I didn't know how to do a dado or a uh, a pocketed uh, section on the edge of these panels on the back, and I didn't even think about it. So the thing is built, and I even had the drivers installed. And I thought damn it, how am I supposed to put a back on this thing that's airtight? And so I left it open. I just left it off wow. and was listening to it. And that's one of the reasons I think I liked it. It just was free flowing. It just sounded great. You know, and it had a big enough woofer to, and it was a cheap ass woofer. So it probably had high QTS and was essentially a, a, an open baffle or a dipole speaker anyway, even though it had box side sides on it. That's and great. I, I liked it, you know, and I took it when I went to the university, I took it to this fraternity house I was in and we, and we used that in all of our like parties when all these hot chicks would come over and you have music playing, they go, you got to bring out your speakers. We'd haul them in there and they would pl play very loud, very dynamic. And it, it's really funny because a lot of it's just pure luck, I think, because you're just learning, you know. Sure. But, Do you anyway. have one of those speakers now by any slim chance? No, I, I don't no. even know what happened to it. It's probably... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Through middle school, high school, still tinkering, still doing it, obviously, because you brought that speaker to college, you said? Um, yeah, I say I, I don't think I ever stopped from that initial um, experimentation. In fact, my whole life was that way. I would I would constantly have something going on no matter where I worked. Um, uh, so, yes, uh, but I got lucky in a couple um areas because again of where i was living because two things on that same campus corner area there was for that time one of the i guess one of the first high-end audio stores uh which seems weird in oklahoma you're thinking well that's kind of a backwater kind right. of a thing but but when you get into the large you know a big college town like that it's not that way if you if you if you drive into norman oklahoma and drive it's like a big modern city and it's you know everybody's educated and um, so anyway, there was this, there was a store, well, I'll say that second there, um, there was a regional speaker company that grew up there that was very, very popular in that part of the country. And they were really eating into the sales of Advent and KLH and people like that. They were making, uh, large bookshelf speakers, but they were making their own cabinets, uh, in house with walnut veneers. So they were a nicer they looked nicer than the Advent and they cost about the same and they sounded better. And it was called Norman Laboratories, okay? Um, and typical of me, I, I go, when I try to get a job when I was younger, I would just, I would walk in and go, I don't wanna, I'm, I'm not here to get paid. I, I don't actually wanna be paid anything. I, I wanna 
work here, thinking that that would help me be able to get the job because I didn't really bring anything to the table. So, and they, and it worked. They were like, okay, well, you can do that. And, and, but over time, you know, uh, they see more and more value. I, I said, well, I can do that. Let me do that. And then, then I'm watching the, the crossover guy, you know, how do you do that? What, what's a Zobel network? What are you talking about? And, um, you know, and um, I was super lucky in that respect to be uh, still in high school to have that kind of exposure. And it just happened to be because this company was there. Otherwise I wouldn't have. Um, but then I, anyway, I walk into this high-end audio store called the gramophone and um, I didn't know what these brands were at the time because in 1975, the absolute sound came out and Harry Pearson introduced that about 73, I believe. And that was the beginning of what we call the modern era. Uh, being, in other words, Marantz and um, Macintosh and all that was not, you know, they weren't gone or anything, but but I think Macintosh had, had switched to solid state. So it left an opening. The market basically invited audio research to become a real company <laughs> or, you know, become the dealers all picked it up because there was a general lack of interest in the transistorized Macintosh gear at the time. So my timeline isn't exactly right, but that's kind of basic. So when I walk into this place in 1975, they have the early Levinson solid state gear, audio research, and everything else you can imagine. Magnaplaner. Sure. Uh, they actually were the ones marketing Magna, Magnapan. Uh, Jim Whiney didn't know what CES was. They said, look, we'll take your product. We'll take it to, to the McCormick Place in Chicago. We'll do all that for you. We'll, we'll distribute it to our audio research dealers. Uh, so that's why most audio research dealers were also magnaplaner dealers in the early days. Um, we had Lynn. Anyway, enough of that. But basically, I walk in because I'm not familiar with these brands. I'm, I'm to the point where the best thing I had ever heard of was Yamaha, you know, or right. that kind of thing. Um, and I was kid in the candy store. It's just kind of like I walked into some alien planet and I'm going, okay, this is exactly what I want to be involved in here, you know. Um, plus, I listened to some of the gear, and I just could not believe the sound quality of what was going on. So that was a shocker. So uh, I thought about that a while. I went back. I did the same thing. I walked in there one day and said, I don't care. I'll, I'll do the warehouse work and delivery, but I want to work here. And somehow they agreed. Um, but again, over time, they realized, well, this kid can do all kinds of stuff. And because I, when they were busy, I would help them sell and present the products to people and and I also knew how to fix things and how to work with, you know, do installations and wiring and setups. And they were like, they kept adding things to me to do. Um, and I ended up working there for years until about 1980. That was dirt while I was in college, you know, okay. so that worked out um, as a fun kind of, kind of job. And, um, you know, anyway, um, what was your so major that, in college that period? Uh, initially, it was business and ended up being EE double E because okay. um, I thought the business was relatively interesting. Uh, I mean, the parts parts of it were, um, you know, economics and that kind of thing I liked, but but things like accounting and um, stuff like anyway, it was a mixed bag. I, I think the problem with that is is I couldn't see myself doing that as a career. I just didn't want to be in that role. But the funny thing, uh, just between you and me, the funny thing was that. I, I got into engineering 
not because I, I didn't really want to be an engineer. I, it was the same thing. I, I couldn't see myself going to work for Phillips or Siemens or, you know, uh, or Bell, Bell or whoever it would have been at the time. Um, I wanted to go to school to learn about, to understand how speakers work uh, on a scientific level, not this cursory audiophile level where you kind of, you know, you right. know some stuff, but you don't actually know the mechanisms of uh, and the science behind it. So that's why I got into that. And I think when I got out, it showed that my, my lack of interest in working as an engineer because um, I went to work for Seagate, which had just taken over from Control Data in Oklahoma City. Control Data had a really large uh, hard drive plant. But back, as you might know, back in those days, you're talking many computers, which were very large and, and hard drives were kind of a different animal. And they were AC powered and they were noisy and there were huge disks. And it was a different kind of world. Um, and control data, I don't remember if they were having problems or not, but Seagate um, was making, uh, you know, small, small disk, smaller format designs. And they bought control data out and took over that factory. There was a... Seagate had 33,000 employees, but there were about, I don't know, maybe a thousand people in this building, this Oklahoma City work operations. Um, and a giant drive, the top, you're gonna love this, the top of the line, the big ass drive was 250 megabytes. And people were like, how could it get any more you know, high end than this? I mean, where, where could they go beyond 250 megabytes, right? Um, uh, but, Anyway, but the reason I'm bringing that up is that that was kind of my 80s life. Uh, that was Seagate, but I was in management. I was managing engineers. Okay. I didn't. I didn't want to go out and out on the floor or out into the uh, into the group and design stuff. I probably wouldn't have been that good at hard drive design. is a very specialized field, anyway. Particularly mechanically, it's very very difficult to do with the, the head flying over the media and all that. And so. Yeah. I, but I, it just wasn't my interest level. I like people. I like working with people. They put me in charge of an entire um, product line. Um, it was called a five half high line. I was responsible for the manufacturing of the entire line, which was about 50,000 drives per month. Hmm. Um, so it was a pretty high pressure job. And I was still young. I was whatever, you know, I was still, I guess, in my late 20s, early 30-ish kind of range. And um, uh, and but of course I learned a lot because there's my big industry experience and you right. see organizational complexity you see how uh, management and and uh, workers and engineers these different groups have to work together you start getting a view of supply chains and the complexity of manufacturing which is pretty astonishing to most people if they've not been around large-scale manufacturing it's crazy absolutely um, right and so um, but even again along the way I was still uh, doing speaker development because what else am I going to do? I'm going to, you know, the, the last thing I want to do is come home and think about work. So I'm, anyway, um, so working somewhat on it over a very, very long period of time adds up to a significant, significant about a, a amount of work and, and uh, learning. Uh, and plus, again, I had the engineering under my belt to understand. So by the time, like in the eighties, I knew what I was doing as opposed to prior. Right. So when I would design something, plus you, you, I found more access. Like here's yep. Harry Olson, 1957. Um, in, in before the, the, the recent area of 
era of simulation, uh, that book is all you need. Uh, everything's in there. The way uh, the behavior of, ra of radiation of, of drivers, um, the uh, interaction with the radiation pattern in, in the room field, um, it, it covers everything. Sure. And and that's really, if I, I don't know this personally, but I, I bet you if you ask about anybody like Kevin Vex or Andrew Jones or anybody, if you go back far enough, it's like, what were you reading back in way back then? They're going to tell you that book. I heard Sean Casey mentioned that one on one of the interviews he did. So there was information around, but it was relative. It wasn't like it is now. There's no internet. You you had to go to an engineering library and just find stumble on something like that. Right. Uh, because EE school isn't talk isn't talking about speakers. So you're really kind of just kind of going, well, how do I actually? There's no internet. There's no uh, link. You know, linkwince website. Right. <laughs> right. What do you? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that in a way it's kind of good because it forces you to learn first principles yourself instead of taking all this from somebody else, you know, and just use it. You actually have to figure it. So there's, there's something good about that maybe. Um, but anyway, by the, the late eighties, you know, you've got, what did I have? I guess we had um, LMS measurement system, which I hated because it was, it took forever. One one shot was a dink to dink to dink to dink to dink to dink to dink down the whole frequency spectrum. You're like, at five to ten minutes to take one shot. So when I finally um, later on, I'll get into that. When I got a TEF twenty, which is the Richard Heiser, you know, the the first really good FFT analyzer. It's like a Melissa kind of thing. Um, the bam, <laughs> you know, impulse based. You know, uh, make a change, bam, shoot it, and um, and super accurate and everything. But, but anyway, that was still helpful by through the eighties, I was like making good sounding speakers because I was to the point where I could understand enough about it to where I was getting some kind of figuring out what's, I think this is a lot of, a lot of this is about correlation because you have to start with the science, but your degree of capability when it comes to um, converting that to the listening part how well it maps over, how well you understand what you're looking at relates to what you're listening to. That is really the what speaker design uh, is about. And the more experience you have with that, the better off you are. And that's, in the, again, Andrew Jones, prop of anybody I know has, besides uh, Earl Geddes or somebody, they go back, you know, when, if you're working in an acoustic laboratory like KEF, for 30 years, you've got a big advantage because you have the you have all this this anechoic data and all. And I didn't I didn't uh, have an anechoic chamber, um, but in, in, but in some ways again that sort of forced me to be very um, concerned about trying to uh, synthesize what I'm measuring to what I'm hearing. And developing my own methodology of what what I think works, and every every speaker designer has to do that on their own. They have to figure out uh, how they're going to decide when the speaker sounds right. And we'll get into that much deeper later. How did you transition from hobbyist speaker builder, hard drive engineer, to full time speaker designer? When and how? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, well, by happenstance, like most things, it, it really, what happened there was um, 
my wife graduated from uh, from the University of Oklahoma uh, in the late 80s with a degree in um, psychiatric nursing. So, so when she decided um, to get her master's, we're there. We start looking at schools. Not that many schools. We wanted a school that specialized in that for ma- for master's program, and that kind of. Uh, plus, we wanted to move somewhere else. We wanted to go west and get out of there. And um, so, we, so you get on this hunt. We went. We actually visited a whole bunch of schools uh, that were that were top five ranked schools for um, psychiatric nursing. And one of them was the University of Utah. But you know, there was also there was UCSF at San Francisco, UCLA, Oregon Health Sciences Center. So we literally got in a car and drove that whole loop. Um, and we went to Salt Lake last on the way back from Oregon Health Sciences Center thing. And and Salt Lake is a pretty cool place. I mean, there's rock climbing, mountain biking, mountains. There's just all kinds of stuff going on, performing arts. Um, it's a lot of fun when you, to be young and, and live and live here. And um, so we both kind of looked at each other and thought, this is kind of like, of, of all the places that we've been, at sure. least, this is like our favorite. So, so we moved here in 90. Um, so I, I quit that job. I was working at Seagate and she was working at a hospital uh, by that time at, in, in Oklahoma City. We moved in my plan. I had a plan while she was in school. Um, we kept her overhead really low by living in the medical tower dorms. You know, it's like the medical housing that was expensive. We kept her overhead really down. And I was uh, I was literally waiting because Micron was building a, a, a chip fab factory here and a big factory. And I was basically waiting for their um, that to open up to apply there and and, and all that. And it uh, you can look it up. They basically I don't even remember why, but it, it just got put on the back burner. They just didn't. Uh, they just delayed it. Um, so, but while I was waiting, I thought, well, I got to do something. So, again, lucky there was this. Um, maybe at least places I've been that the best high-end audio store I've ever been in is in Salt Lake called, it was, it's called Audition Audio. And it was a large place. The guy was really, it was well-managed. It was a good, you know, it was a well-run business. And it was essentially the factory store for Wilson because Wilson was like an hour away from us. And um, I think we were the world's largest Wilson dealer. And But we had every brand. We had all the electronics like Krell, Roland, Audio Research, Levinson, Goldman. I mean, um, and of course, when I realized they were there, um, didn't take me long to hightail my butt over there. And that was one of the most fun parts of my life because I didn't have to run a business. I didn't have to worry about anything. I could just be around and sell high-end audio gear um, and thinking that maybe this is going to go on for a year or two until Micron is, is up and running. And they never did. So I worked there for about, uh, well, I worked there until I decided to do my own thing and start a uh, speaker company. Uh, so about maybe four years. So kind of in the mid nineties period, I had met, as soon as I worked here, I met an industrial designer, furniture designer that designed and built high-end furniture. And I met him at that retail shop because he built speakers for a number of <laughs> custom things like Terry Budge was the original uh, Watt puppy designer. And he had, he wasn't at Wilson anymore, and this guy David Evett was helping him. He would build speakers for him, boxes for him, and this, that, and the other. 
so me and this guy david become good friends and um because we had a lot in common interest in industrial design and, and speakers and stuff and he had a shop so he, he already had a, a, a mazak cnc lathe and had a big uh, cnc router so once i and, and the shop was big so when i visited his facility i thought holy crap man speaker making city let's let's so i told him i have all kinds of ideas of things that not only i that i had but that he could help me develop them on the um the, the structure side in other words, he's a furniture builder so innovation he had ideas for innovation in cabinets and we experimented with things like um it would be a beautiful wooden cabinet with leather front but underneath it was solid machine bronze things like that and it was pretty hardcore uh, we eventually uh by about 1995 96 kind of after about four or five years of dinking around because i met him as soon as i moved here um we so we call, we had a company called evett and shaw okay and the first product i came i think we came out with was called the milano which was this thirty five thousand dollar tower speaker using focal drivers and it was you know, 35 grand actually at that time was expensive in 1995. That's so it was competing with the Wilson and, and that kind of thing. And it was competitive. I mean, sonically, it was really good. It weighed about 200 pounds. Um, but we learned the hard way, even though I had been in retail, I didn't really think of this because uh, in retail, I wasn't really making decisions about what brands we were going to carry, right? I found out that we, we started taking this, this speaker and a smaller one we made around to these major retailers. And they were like, yeah, we'll listen to it. You know, bring it in. We'll listen to it. And they really would like it. And so based on the fact that they really liked the speaker, you would obviously say, well, do you want, do you want to be a dealer? Uh, and they're like, of course not. <laughs> Why would we want to be a dealer? We, <laughs> we have to sell we're on quotas with these people. We have to right. sell a certain amount of BMW and Vanderstein and Mac. We can't be, if we sell your product, we're going to not sell something that we need to sell right. to keep our franchise. That's a dirty little secret, but that's, so that, that actually explains why a lot of times guys that work in retail shops don't necessarily like what they're selling because what they're selling is, is based around commercial reasons and not based around audiophile reasons. Right. So we kind of uh, retreated back and we went, that's really weird. No matter how good our product is, it's not going to sell through retail channels, at least by that time. Now, in the earlier days, 1970, 1980, you could walk in and do what a lot of people did, like Spica and Vandersteen and Dahlquist and, and show them the product and they would pick it up. But right. later on, it, it just wasn't a thing anymore because it was set we're, we're a bmw dealer you know and so right. it was all over okay sure. so we we um we went to shows like um i guess mainly ces and we had international distributors that were interested and we thought okay well that's that's cool um we ended that brand ended, ended up being quite popular in asia in markets like taiwan and japan hmm. but with no distribution in the united states um and that was fine with me, except we, we created later what was, I guess, the first audiophile desktop speaker. It was a $2,500 little speaker that was like this big wow. <laughs> uh, and an amplifier to go with it. And um, that was called the Evett and Shaw Elan. And they're still, we sold some of those in the States. They're kind of collector's items, but 
Most of that stuff, if they're in the States, they've been bought by Jap. They're in Japan now. Uh, Japanese guys buy them. Huh. Um, but there's a few around in the States. But what anyway, the reason that that didn't work out, it was, the brand was doing pretty well. It was that Japanese banking crisis in the late 90s. I don't know if you remember, recall that. Remember when the Japanese banking thing just about 1997, I think, or 98, it just crashed one day. And the consumers over there uh, are not like here. They literally just stopped buying things hundred <laughs> percent. So we had zero, we went from doing well to zero sales and it stayed that way. Um, okay. So, so the next step, you know, what do you do now? Uh, well, at that point, that, that was 1999 when we finally realized, okay, this isn't getting any better over there. And that coincided with the birth of my daughter, Kylie, and I, I was 42 by then. So here I am, an older parent, brand, a newborn baby, and a company that now has no revenue. So my wife is looking at me like, uh, it's time to get a job, uh, you know, and I was like, yeah, you're right. And fortunately, since 19 something, 95 or something, I had been doing contract development work for a pro company. Okay. And that, and by this just perfect coin, you know, coincided with where right about that time in the late nineties, this company was starting to skyrocket. Uh, and they're, when I say pro, it wasn't public address as much as it was uh, what, what in our industry is called commercial audio. So when you walk into an airport or a retail store like the Gap or a, re uh, a restaurant chain where they have dozens of speakers, that's called commercial audio. Um, JBL dominates that market. JBL and a company called Atlas dominate that market. Um, and it's tough to get in. But what was, what was new, though, is that restaurants and retail stores were changing in the way they were constructed. They, they went from drop tile ceiling to open structure ceiling to where there is, you know, you, and that's what you see everywhere now, right? Just right. blacked out uh, right. with no drop tile. And so this company I worked for essentially invented the idea of the what's called a pendant speaker, which was one that hung from an aircraft cable. And the challenge was to, um, so we had, a, we had a problem because the, the specifier people that, let's say, the Gap or Banana Republic uh, hires this big specifier company, which are audio engineers, and they'll say, um, they'll choose the products. They'll say, we're going to specify 34 of these JBL Control 25s. Uh, we had to somehow break into that market. Um, and, and what they want to do is they want to cheap out. They want to use one quarter as many as are necessary in an overhead system. Right. Um, so if you, if you use a 90 degree pattern, you have a, it creates a hotspot effect if you don't have enough speakers to create a, a full pattern. But that's what they were doing all day long. You walk into these stores and it'd be hot, cold, hot, cold in, in the treble range because of the dispersion pattern of the speaker, because it was all based around 90 degree pattern at, at um, one kilohertz um, or at 10 kilohertz. I mean, so, um, and, and we, we patented a solution to get around that. In fact, I, we, we built out an entire engineering department. They had nothing. They didn't have any technical capability. We had eight engineers and a big R&D budget. And I hired um, uh, Eric Alexander, the guy who owns Tekton, yep. uh, as a development engineer because I needed help. We were up, we were up against a time frame problem. Um, 
and up against behemoth companies like JBL Pro, you know, two billion dollar companies. Sure. Um, and we know we're not going to beat them, but we can come up with a different product that serves a different market. Um, and we patented a, a horn lens technique that gave us 120 degrees uh, dispersion at uh, 16 kilohertz and solved the problem. There's still an issue with, with um, SPL density when you're walking around. You can't fix that, but you can fix the way the, the dispersion pattern is even so that you don't get the near the dropout effect. So they that, so they could underspecify these jobs and it still sounded good. So we had all the big things like Banana Republic and all of those big retailers. And we still they still do today, Old Navy, The Gap, uh, tons of big um, restaurant chains, airports, all kinds of things like that. So but by the time we sold that company in 2004 to a big company, we were selling 30 plus thousand speakers a year. What was uh, so, the name of that company? Um, it originally was called SoundTube Entertainment. It started out as a, a um, what would be the term? <clears throat> it wasn't a, in, it was, it was a, it looked kind of like a, it was designed to be an advertising carrier. It was a tube that had advertising wrapped on it, but it was a speaker also, and it was flexible. So they could use them in outdoor uh, mm -hmm. things and all, do all kinds of, things with them, which was kind of goofy, I thought, but, but there was a need for it. But the more we were there, uh, we, we just told them straight out, look, th this is, we've got to make real speakers. We can't do this anymore. Right. This, we can develop this pendant approach, which allow you to go in and do op drop open ceiling structure buildings. And that's a big industry. We can, we can do something. So that's when the thing just went crazy and, and we became large it's now called ste nowadays it's still a huge company um because an even larger company bought it but um were but you an owner of that company no i was no. director of engineering though just um, director okay and so that and it was it was big but in, in terms of volume but it was small enough to where you know, i mean there was a, we had in-house marketing Okay. Um, so there was a director of marketing and a director, a, a CFO and me, along with the president. And it was a, what I liked about it, it, it was a open environment, a very creative environment. He would just basically say, here's a million dollar budget for 2001 or whatever. You guys just go in there and figure something out. Just try everything you can do. So we built an anechoic chamber so that we could uh, do proper measurements and have this TEF 20. and. Um, and anyway, this is actually maybe the most important part of my, um, maybe, I don't know, but maybe certainly one of the most important phases of my life because I, like most audio people in the home audio industry, don't know anything about pro audio and what, what's going on with that. <clears throat> um, Eric and I both were, were I think, fascinated and uh, surprised at what we ran into there. Um, because we're working with companies like Bema and BNC and um, 18 Sound and the real companies and Eminence right. and you know where where the woofer is 600 bucks and it, you know what I mean, ultra high efficiency, ultra high power handling capability. Because we were getting into the public address thing, we were making pendant speakers that were ultra high SPL designs that could be hung in. Uh, let's take like in Caesar's Palace. Well, a pendant speaker is 40 feet in the air. Right. So what are you going to do about pattern control and SPL for that? 
that's a different than a restaurant or something. Yep. So Eric and I were like, okay, so we contact, we get to know all these guys at, at BNC and Bayman and everybody to the point where they would just, they would just send us stuff. Oh, we have a new 18 inch driver. We're going to sit. So we had hundreds of drivers. Um, so that gave us a database. We'd measure everything um, and create a catalog of everything and, and built our own database and understanding uh, instead of relying on other people. Um, but the two things as you are well aware of um, that we that we walked away with and integrated later into our, our own companies was high efficiency and control directivity, neither of which was on the radar prior to that. Um, and I think he and I both realized that uh, if you want something to sound live, it has to be high efficiency. It's yeah. got to be over 90. Otherwise, it might sound good. It might sound linear. It might have good layering and imaging. And it might be tonally uh, nice. It, it could have all kinds of wonderful attributes, but it doesn't have enough dynamic range to sound live. Okay. okay. So my theory coming out of it, and actually when we, when that company was sold, Eric and I didn't talk after that for, for a long time. We didn't afterwards go, wow, you know, what are you going to do? Right. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my idea. Um, I never even ran by the idea to him, but my idea was take all of these pro parameters and synthesize them into an open, open baffle format. And I thought that could be the magic formula right there. Um, and, and so, and, and you purchased the, the first production product of that era was, it was a brand called Emerald physics. Um, and the first production, not the first product, but the first production product was called the CS2, uh, came out of the gate, super popular. You remember that at that, I guess, Rocky mountain show or wherever we were, it was kind of a hit because it was, it solved a lot of problems. It sounded really good, particularly in that price class. And it was a, it was like a fresh idea. It was, it felt new and interesting. And, um, so it was very, very popular. So that was nice. Um, but if I wouldn't have gone to work for STE, I wouldn't have, it, it wouldn't spatial and what my approach would not be the same. And I don't think Eric's would be either. So that was the, that was the two thousands. <laughs> so I sold that company. Um, so like you said, um, in the car uh, race, when you and I were talking prior to the video about how bad the economy was um, right. in the late 2000s, um, again, kind of life issues kind of came up and, and the economy was a nightmare by 2008. Right when I was launching Emerald Physics and CS2 was coming on the market, we had the real estate crash. It still sold like crazy and did really well, but you could tell, I mean, the economy was a wreck. And uh, But then I had... My son by that time was, I think, eight. And without getting into the details, we ended up having to do uh, two brain surgeries in that zone between 2008 and 2011. And the economy and having to stay home and help take care of my son, because my wife was a, um, a life flight uh, air ambulance helicopter nurse, and she couldn't just quit that job. You can't just go back. If you, right. if you leave, you're done. So I thought, so I, so I like, okay, I'll stay home. Um, I sold the company to Walter Lederman, the Underwood Wally guy, because I had dealers at that point, Emerald Physics dealers, like 25 of them. 
Mm-hmm. And he was far and away the best. And, or, you know, he's the by far and away the largest selling dealer. And he was a brilliant business guy, still is, of course. Is. And he's, he's a really uh, a true industry uh, veteran and important figure in the industry, you could call him. And, and I liked him. He and I were friends. Um, and I, I just told him, I said, you know what? I think it's going to be, it's not really practical to try to brute force the continuing growth of this speak, this company because I can't, I don't really have the time or the money at, the, at this point because of the economy, it was just not really. Right. So I, so I said, what do you, are you interested in just buying it? Cause I think I might just sell it. And he said, magically said, yeah, I think I am. I guess, you know, this is a, an interesting and unique technology. And I love the product and my customers love it. Let's talk about it. Anyway, we ended up coming up with what I felt was a good arrangement. I sell the thing, but we have a three-year non-compete, which is typical. Yep. So I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, what am I going to do for, I can't make any speakers for three years. So I basically am sitting at home taking care of, of my son. And so I just dream up crazy shit. You know, I, I came up with a thing called the Velocity Bridge, which was an impedance stabilizer for speakers. It's easy to engineer, but it, it actually, it helped people and, you know, and it was cheap and it worked. Um, we sold a thousand of them to a, a dealer in Hong Kong, for example. And, um, but a lot of us customers bought them. And uh, anyway, so those kinds of things were easy. I it designed a product you might've heard of called the black hole, which was a, sure. a, a low frequency base. Of, it was an active base absorber, similar to the one that bag end, uh, did, um, but it was it was for audio file systems, and it was again it was something that was useful. It was win win. I could sit at home and make those, and not have to have a factory. But guys liked it; they still like them, and ask ask for them and all of that. So that's how. And then then the other thing, uh, I know I'm probably jabbering too much, but it's okay. The the original spatial actually started before I sold Emerald Physics. It, uh, I say you know it was incorporated in 2010. Is true. But it was already, I was already using that name uh, and selling, or no, I wasn't selling. I was developing a, um, a computer, a Mac Mini-based um, solution to eliminate the need for a DSP controller that, like you had to get rid of the Behringer unit. We're like, okay, if everybody's moving to computers for the music source, it's already there. Why don't we do active uh, crossovers and EQ and maybe room correction so what, when the signal comes out of FireWire, which is a multi-channel, has multi-channel capability, we'll go out of that to a four-channel or six-channel pro recording interface DAC, and boom, we've got an active three-way system that sounds good because we don't have a third-party processor. We're doing it like, you know, on chip, right? And um, so we had six channels coming right out of the Mac Mini. And that's what Spatial was. It was a it was a computer audio company uh, for use with uh, with Emerald Physics speakers. So, but after and I did that, I was I was supplying those systems to Walter Wally, who was selling Emerald Physics speakers. Uh, but then later on, I made it broader. I made a two channel version where you could just anybody could do room correction remotely. And this is the early days, obviously. So I yeah. could get online and do remote measurement. Um, with just a little thing called fuzz measure it's not that big a deal but it helped people you could you could you could do a cheap and dirty way of doing room correction if they were already using a computer anyway for their source which uh, a lot of guys were kind of doing so 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 all of those things 
were is how I made a living in that period while I was waiting for uh, the non-compete clause to be over. And my intention was not to come out of the gate and try to uh, beat up on Walter or anything with Emerald Physics. It was my 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 interest was I want to figure out how to make open baffle work and sound at least as good as the EP speakers did, but without the need for a processor. So it's Right. Plug and play, pure passive. And that's what the company, that's why that company exists today. Do you feel the current spatial audio products have accomplished what you set out to do as a 12 year old? <laughs> um, I would say without a doubt, way beyond whatever. Uh, when you're a kid, you're, you're, your way of thinking is is in the world of imagination, not in the concrete world, right. where you, you you consider things like the economics of things and all that. And so I was dreaming, and uh, I think the real dream point was when I was in when I was in high school when I first picked up an Absolute Sound in 1974, I think. I just looked at that and I thought, God, you know, I just I just idolized the people that were in there. Right. You know, like Rappaport and Jim Whiney. I thought if I could, that's what I would really, that would be my life satisfaction is to be in that magazine and then say, yeah, your product technology is better than anybody else's. Um, and that is a long time ago, um, whatever that is, 35 years ago. But that was a dream. Like I thought, I think I can do this, but I'm not doing it. I have to learn how to do it. It's going to take a long time. Sure. And I'm not a, a genius. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not linguist or somebody like that. Intellectually, I don't think so. I, I thought it was going to take a lot, not only hard work, but a very long period of time. And that's exactly what it did take. People kind of go, well, why did it, if you started working on open baffle speakers around 1990, what, what the hell is the problem? Why, why does it take right. you that long? And um, I don't know, but whatever it is, what it is, but I even think by the time the, the CS2 came out that you had, I was already feeling like I had achieved a major milestone. I thought this is a step forward for the industry in a lot. Of, it wasn't a perfect speaker, but I thought this is a new and better direction generally. So in that regard, if that's all I ever do in the speaker field, then I was actually satisfied with that. Um, but then particularly, I think more than anything in the last two or three years since that, if you've been following the, the brand, the when the M3 Sapphire came out in whatever that 2019 and the, and the X5, those kind of came out around the same time. We had our development approach had gotten so much more evolved that when we would come out with a product, it was a much larger jump than before. Gotcha. The the, the minute the the sapphire came out. We were like, we've got a monster on our hands here. And we took it to some shows and people just literally couldn't believe it. Um, now, obviously, I like it because I designed it and everything. But that's, you know, that dominates the open baffle market by a mile. Nobody's even in the same zip code when it comes to popularity. Uh, and it's because that product is that good. It's so much better than what we were doing just one generation before that it would have to, I mean, that's kind of where, your question might come in. Why? Uh, what is it that in your process or in your theory or in your methodology 
evolved enough in a reasonably short period of time in two or three years that you were able to make that big of a jump. Whereas when you see other companies, they don't change much over decades right. at a time. That's right. See what I mean? So I think, so anyway, once I kind of realized what we had on our hands by, by 2020 and the company was just like going straight up in sales and everything. And we were getting so big, we were worried about, well, how in the hell are we going to, uh, we were outsourcing chassis at that time. So in 19, we thought we have to bring it, we have to buy routers and we have to get organized to start making our own product because we couldn't get enough third party help. So, um, but anyway, I think that's the moral of the story is that I'm actually, if I walked away today, I'm completely satisfied that I've achieved a goal that's beyond what I had ever expected to do um, and never look back and think, I wish I would have done X, Y, or Z. That's awesome. uh, in fact, when people say, when's the flagship coming out, you can ask them. I tell every single guy, it's like, I literally don't know how to make anything better than this. Uh, okay. until some kind of a driver comes out that I just, I'm kind of at the end of the road on what's possible in my work, in my toolkit, okay. you know, but let's get into that a little bit. So you mentioned the Sapphire being the ultimate, if you will, and that's compared to the, what was known as the M3, right? That was the generation before it, correct? Uh, yeah, let's call it the turbo, the M3 turbo, turbo and then right? versus the Sapphire. Yeah. Okay. What changed between that generation? What actually is different? So whether it's an owner now or a possible customer and they're wanting to know what is so drastically different because a lot of people will look at something and go, well, it looks similar, so it probably sounds the same, mm -hmm. right? So what, yeah. from a design standpoint, is actually different? And I'm not talking crossover quality and wire quality, right? What I would think you'll say is small changes. What is a drastic design difference? There may be more, but the two major things that account for the shift were, um, the most important one was me finally uh, not giving up, but deciding to move away from compression drivers. Um, I love compression drivers and Again, until I got into the pro industry, I wasn't had no experience with them and everything. And so, if, if you look at the CS2 like you had, and then the later, all the EP stuff was. Um, in fact, the next model after CS2 that you had was called the 2.3 CS2.3. Well, the the, the point three is three way. We went from a waveguide loaded compression driver to the same driver in a coaxial uh, eminence um, 12 inch coax. Um, there's benefits to a coax, as you well know, um, in terms of polar performance. Uh, but it's better on paper, though, I think, than in real life. In other words, it sounds just perfect. It's point source, it's time aligned, blah, 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 and all that. But there's, there's actually a whole big bunch of issues uh, with it. Now, if you design the, um, the throat and if you design the entire coaxial unit yourself, like, say, Kef did with the UniQ, you, I think you can get good results out of it, but if you do it the way I was doing it, where I'm trying to get something to work, um, the the uh, 12 inch unit you're using the 12 inch cone profile as your waveguide, and uh, Earl would laugh, you know, because that that's just not a very good waveguide. I mean, in terms of waveguide performance, and it's acoustically transparent. There's sound going through it. 
you know, um, and there's some shadowing effects and things that I don't like about coax is when they get very big. If they're really tiny, maybe it's not a problem, but a 12 inch coax has some shadowing issues and things going on that you can see in the polar performance. Anyway, uh, here's the main deal there is um, compression drivers. Uh, the main reason I gave up on it is not had it didn't have that much to do with being in a coaxial mid-range. It was because in order to follow this edict that I want it to be passive, it's a world of hurt trying to get most compression drivers to be linear enough without a lot of crossover circuitry. Yep. And you're kind of like, you know, and it still, it still doesn't sound like what I really would like. It's still, there's a, there's some metallic um, nature in the driver that we had. Um, the uh, DE250 BNC soft dome that Earl designed is way, way better. And, was, and we used that. That was what the triode master versions were, you know, um, really great compression driver. But at the end of the day, um, I was kind of done with the coax thing. And the big $30,000 Lumina speaker that we were making, it was the same way. It just was a higher end uh, coax. It was a, it was a Radian uh, unit. And I just kind of got to the point where I thought, I've, again, run into the end game. I, this is about as far as I feel like I can push this in a consumer product. Sure. You know, if I built some custom one-off that was active and blah, 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 yeah, I can do whatever I want. But if you're just going to make a speaker and sell it, I was kind of the point where I, I need to go a different route. And um, and that that was the biggest difference because... One day I was looking at, because I didn't really follow, I had, I had years been not interested in, in audiophile drivers. Like if you look on Mattisound and you look at ScanSpeak and Accuton and all these different yep. products, I used to just go through the catalogs all the time, just look at every one and think about them, blah, blah, blah. I hadn't done that for like 15 years. So I, I got out there and started looking around at what was going on thinking, um, because Vinny Rossi um, developed a speaker using a, a ScanSpeak tweeter. So in other words, a conventional top se section, like an LS35A kind of a thing, or Falcon Acoustics, but then dipole bottom. And at first I didn't really get what he, what he was thinking, but it, it actually turned out to be genius. I mean, um, for a whole bunch of reasons, but so I, I think I respect his uh, choices and his thinking on that a lot. I think not everybody knows Benny Ross, he's a, a super smart guy, but this is a really special idea they had in a way that I kind of hadn't really ever thought of. So I'm not trying, I'm not, I had no intent to copy or anything what he was doing because this speaker was 20,000 bucks. But, but what I'm getting at is that it made me revisit the idea what's possible with dome. So I started looking around and when I looked at this Fearless DA32 that was new, it was a new, new Sapphire, uh, synthetic Sapphire ceramic driver, um, the claim to fame was, hey, you know, the first breakup mode is 24K, so it's super great. You know, there's no breakup, blah, blah, blah. And it's really linear. Holy crap, you look at the data sheet and you're like, that's, that's got to be that's got to be doctored because you know how companies, I mean, right. people like Peerless and ScanSpeak don't really doctor their data sheets, but it looked like it would have had to have been because you look at it and there's a straight line from 575 hertz to 45K with this. Um, oil can resonance at 24 and you're going, that's not possible. Um, and so I, I tested the idea. I ordered two of them and we tested it, measured exactly like uh, on Clio measured exactly like um, their data sheet. 
I thought, this is really interesting. This is a breakthrough because it also sounded, it, it had this character that I've always looked for that I think Accuton tweeters have, which is no sound, right? no character. And this is, again, getting back compression drivers with all their dynamics and speed and power and blah, blah, blah. I always felt like there was too much of a signature involved. Um, and of course, you can say, well, that's primarily because you've got some type of waveguide, you know, however good the waveguide is going to have right. a lot to do with that signature. But Which is true. this thing, this thing had that that effect like the Accuton where I I don't hear the driver at all, you know. So I've told the story a million times and people, it's kind of controversial, but um, there are ways to run a tweeter lower than you should. Um, if the FS is about 600, you, you really shouldn't use it any lower than about one octave higher. And even then maybe use a second order network. Uh, it's in order to, you know, so the driver's not beating itself to death and all that. Um, but the but the thermal aspect of it is a real challenge uh, because the voice coil on a tweeter is just, uh, you know, like almost the diameter of a human hair. So you can't handle a lot of heat and the buildup can be a problem. It's an aggregate. Uh, you, you don't get thermal runaway, but you, you kind of do. In other words, you, it just gets hot enough to where it gets out of round and expands and uh, starts scraping or just opens, you get an open coil. So you, you basically burn it up, right? And um, so anyway, working with Peerless, I, I just went to them and said, you know what, I don't really know if you can do this, but with all the tools that are available nowadays, like ferrofluid and suspension options, this is already um, a one and a quarter inch dome with a large uh, roll suspension, multi-roll multi suspension. Um, what could we do to see how low we could actually use it and get reliable output You know, at a, a 25 to 50 watt RMS, which is a lot for a tweeter. Sure you know, can, can, can we get usable, like reliable 95 dB one meter output out of this thing and not be worried about selling it and getting blowing it up out in the field? <laughs> and it was really surprising, A, how um, good they were to work with and how much they were willing to invest in terms of time and effort. I was, it was, they, they were just great to deal with. Um, and so sample after sample, you know, eventually the thing was like, man, this it really, really works. And they didn't ruin the sound of it. I didn't feel like they, we gave up anything in, in the, the performance of the driver. Um, okay, so anyway, long story on that, but um, that are became that. Excuse me, Clayton, are those drivers proprietary to you and Spatial Audio? Well, our version is, yeah. Your version. Uh, the, DA, the DA32 is available everywhere. As It's a production tweeter. Um, but it doesn't have these mods, you know, to it. Right. And no, most people wouldn't maybe know to, you know, they, they just use a regular crossover. Sure. Um, however, you know, to be perfectly frank and honest about that, what happened during development, though, is that even then I, I got to the point where I was like, you know what, even though the test, we ran one of them for about six months, almost every day in our test room and, and with no failures. but um i'm looking at the dome driver uh motion and I, I don't have a laser interferometer so i can't measure motion but too much motion for my comfort level gotcha. so that means the the low frequent there's too much still too much low frequency energy uh you know moving this thing around uh so i came up with a a uh a fix that I mean, you could say it's a band-aid 
in a way, but it's not not really. Um, and again, this is this is the kind of the controversial part is. Um, I, I said initially there's no crossover, and I still you know I would still say that yeah there's no crossover in an M3 Sapphire, but it gets down to semantics and terminology because I had people online uh, say well because what I did is I put it there is a capacitor in series with the tweeter, but it's large. Gotcha. Okay, so it uh, Ron at New Record Day when he reviewed it the speaker this was already a topic of you know people were kind of arguing about it so. He said right on, and he did this, which is the way to solve the thing as he goes. He plugged it into the crossover, measured it on his Clio system, look at the response, pull it, because the tweeter has banana plug inputs right directly in the back of it, unplugs the bananas from the amp, plugs it directly into the tweeter, same exact response, same roll off, everything's exactly the same. Well, now some things aren't, I mean, you can say there's some phase rotation and there's some impedance changes and things like that. but I'm saying that that, and again, you, I don't, I actually don't care if they want to argue about it. It's, I'm saying that that's not a crossover because in my mind, a crossover is designed to modify the behavior of a tweeter so that, you know, cause you want it to roll off right. uh, higher. Uh, that's what I always thought a crossover was for a tweeter. And this thing doesn't do anything, but it's basically in the same way that a DC blocking cap would work in another kind of circuit. It's like, it's just a low frequency blocker. That's what I think. But it is important, since it is in the signal path of a very high-performance tweeter, that the uh, that it be a good capacitor. So initially, we used a good poly cap and then bypassed it with a with a real high-end cap. Now we've gone all the way to the max, and the full value um, single value is a VH Labs V cap ODAM oil cap, which is by far the best capacitor that we've tested. And other companies that are using it have kind of confirmed that. So it goes through that that. ODAM oil cap and then straight into this DA32 custom driver. That's the tr that's the whole high frequency, not only the whole high frequency system, but when you think about if you're crossing over at 575, we're talking about a mid-treble system. We're talking about a completely different kettle of fish than a regular speaker. Because now the mid most of the mid-range, uh, the upper part of the vocal performance and the piano, you know, mid part of the piano spectrum is coming out of a driver that's this big around and it weighs 0 0.3 grams and it doesn't have any sound and it has the ability to accelerate and decelerate hundreds of times faster than a cone woofer does um, so that is to answer your question in a super long way is if you compare the sapphire to the to the turbo up to one kilohertz or around in that zone, that vocal material on the old one was coming out of a 12-inch cone that has all kinds of resonant behavior on the surface. And uh, it's slow. It doesn't uh, decelerate fast enough. Uh, it has directivity problems because it's a cone. It's not a controlled directivity device. You could say that that tweeter's not either, but <laughs> it's a, I would rather do it, in other words, instead of doing a, a louder approach where you take a mid-range driver all the way to the treble, this approach, I'm convinced, going top down and driving the, the tweeter as low as you can sounds much, much better and has much better uh, in-room control of what's happening. Um, so a lot of guys will say, well, why don't you, that's, that really does sound better and it's a good idea. 
is there a way to take it down to 250 or 100 or even if you could you get into the piston region to the point where it doesn't make any sense anyway but even then when you get down below 500 hertz or so um which we're doing i think it sounds good to have lots of emissive area you want a lot of cone area moving a lot of sound i don't like these little you know, I've seen $200,000 speakers that have four inch drivers and they're just, you know, the Doppler right. distortion is like crazy and it's just moving around. That doesn't even sound good to me. Um, so big drivers that are moving a very little sound really good because they move air, but you have to keep the crossover point down. So if you have a pro audio woofer that's lightweight and has extremely good acceleration and you, and you cross it over around 600, if you can get it to blend correctly with this tweeter, then that's what a sapphire is. Whereas the older product really was more like a, can't think of a great analogy, but more like a tannoy with no box on it. Okay. Nothing wrong with that, but this approach sounds much better to go to the wideband tweeter. So that's the first of the two things. So the, that was a breakthrough because I think that tweeter is a breakthrough anyway, uh, this, this peerless driver. But um, the other thing was, is that we had learned a lot more about woofer development and designing our own woofers. So we took a design to eminence and said, can you, and you would understand this or probably know this is that the reason most speaker companies, smaller companies, don't make their own act, manufacture their own drivers is because it's stupid. Um, you, you know, it, you can't. It's not cost effective to be tooling up diecast tools yeah. and all, you know all this stuff, sure. or or all of the expense to figure out how to make a, you know, do the assembly accurately. Yep. So you just contract with a, an existing company, whether it's a consumer company or a pro company. They, everyone pretty much does that until they get really big like Kef or somebody like that. Um, okay, so then um, we went to them and said, within the range of chassis, spiders, you know, they have a huge catalog of thousands yeah. of soft parts, but they only have a few um, uh, chassis baskets as they're called in our business so you have to kind of work with what they already have in other words they'll say with that basket right there that you're liking that's only a two and a half inch diameter voice coil basket that's what it is you the slug everything is already there do you want that okay no i want a three inch voice coil okay that means you have to use this other chassis so you have to figure all this stuff out but once you can settle on the hard parts they can figure out the soft parts with their own development and simulation system. So all I really have to do is go, okay, I want those hard parts, that chassis, here's my TS parameters, teal small parameters that I want you to use. And they look at them and they, they call back and go, why do you want to do that? And you go, it's an open baffle speaker. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I've never done that before. Um, in this case, Eminence already had because they, they built a, a driver for Pure Audio Project that was an open baffle driver. Right. I don't know how it's designed, but you know what I mean? So it wasn't the first time they had heard it, but all of these giant catalogs of pro audio woofers, none of them are usable for open baffle. Um, so anyway, they were great. Also, Eminence has a whole uh, development team that just does that. They make, they make samples for manufacturers. So their samples were great. We finally got that settled. Um, we had came out with an amazing woofer. So we had a lot better bass power and impact than the turbo. 
um, and it went a lot lower. So, you know, it goes down to right about, uh, Ron measured 28 hertz in his in his room, but I just say 32 or 30 hertz, you know, it's a typical in-room response. But that's a lot better than what we had before, and we were pushing more in the 40 hertz range. Uh, the bass is just a lot quicker and tighter and deeper than the old series. So if you marry um, essentially world-class bass, I think, I mean, a lot of people think that's about the best bass on the market is the M3. Um, if you take that and you have this really cool tweeter technology, then, then the whole game is how well can you integrate them together? If you can successfully make that work as a system, then you're probably going to have a speaker that, that other manufacturers can't compete with. Um, and when it came out, we took a long time getting that to work, but when it came out, I mean, you tell me, but uh, I mean, if you look around on the media, like audio circle right. and these YouTube things, it's pretty obvious that this is a dangerous weapon uh, to be trying to compete against sure. at this point. And it's fair um, to say that your sales numbers would show that as well, right? Oh yeah. And that's always a wonderful factor, which is a perfect segue into engineering objective versus subjective, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I know what you'll say, but tell us what your feelings are on measurements are. Well, I'm going to venture to, to guess that it's similar to most other speaker designers that have some significant experience, because I think there's a pattern that they follow. Initially, they don't do enough scientific work and they, they rely too much on listening and they rely too much on um, on cultural, that's not the right word, but on non-scientific things like I'm building this two-way speaker and I've got these expensive drivers, like expensive has nothing to do whether or not the driver's right. any good. Sure. They'll, they'll buy some expensive drivers and they think the reason that they don't love it yet is probably because they just need to spend more on the crossover parts. And if they just got the right capacitor in there and the right value that, you know, in this first order, you know, uh, design that right. that then it's going to sound good. So it's kind of that, that search thing, just like people do with cables. If I just buy this other cable, it's going to somehow fix all this stuff. And then, but and I think a, it's normal to kind of go through those phases in the early stages until you realize that you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Because if you have two drivers that have an octave of overlap, uh, you're basically screwed to begin with because and I've said, I don't want to sound like I'm repeating this every time I'm on a YouTube interview, but um, here's an easy test. Take a six and a half inch woofer, take a uh, high quality one inch dome tweeter, hook them both up full range and listen to this one, listen to that one and see how they're from different planets. And, and just ask yourself, how are you going to blend those? They, they, they don't sound, they don't sound enough alike to ever believe that you could blend them. So if you use a one inductor coil and one capacitor and you have this huge overlap area of, of an octave, then both drivers are reproducing sound equally at the same time over that broad area. And, it, and unfortunately, that's also kind of in what I call kind of the really critical area where you're really, things that are very annoying kind of from 1K to four or five kilohertz. Uh, this is right where everybody's crossing over, right? you know? And uh, so even if they have a better filter, a, a second order or higher filter that's done well, it's tricky business to try to hand off a woofer 
that's supposed to be doing vocal material to this little tweeter and expect that you that's I think that's really what the louder guy or the, the widebander guys are talking about. Um, and I, and they're absolutely right. What I think they're saying is they're saying I can hear the switchover. I can hear that these drivers are different. Okay, well, what's what's interesting is that if you that that's happening, let's say at my point at 600 hertz, but you can't really hear it. Once you get down below one kilohertz, that that acuity of all that just doesn't. I don't. I can't hear my our crossovers at all. I can't even hear there is a transition. So that partly has to do with where you're doing it. But um, anyway, the um, these are common mistakes that I think that you eventually um, learn your way out of. You you along the way you realize okay I have to have a multipole filter. Otherwise, I've got to get control of the behavior of these drivers in order to integrate them in a way where I'm getting satisfactory uh, phase and amplitude integration. Right. And then I'll worry about impedance and stuff later. Um, but then um, now to get to your, I think where you're going with that is that until you buy, you can you can get Basebox Pro and Basebox Pro crossover and simulate all you want. That generally doesn't sound very very good, even though it might be mathematically accurate. I never, I bought that a long time ago. That's that Basebox Pro yeah. crossover designer. It didn't sound, it didn't, it measure okay in some cases, but it didn't sound good. That's because it doesn't take into account enough information about the driver's actual performance data. It's making too many assumptions and flatlining just stuff that actually, you know, needs to be in there. Um, so until you get a good measurement system, and it doesn't even have to be good, you literally, I've uh, never mentioned this before, but you literally can design a good loudspeaker with a real-time analyzer RTA measurement system that's just using pink noise. Um, because as long as you can see what's going on now, the, and then we'll get into this, but the degree of what you're seeing, right. the depth of the information is the difference. But um, before, you know, nowadays, there's really no excuse when you go to the show and these the shows and these, you talk to these designers with a lot of times in new companies and they're like, yeah, we mainly do it by ear. And, you know, we don't really have a, med, you know. there's no excuse for that because Omni might cost $300. It's not $20,000 like it used to be. And yet hardware and computers and all this stuff, 300 bucks from Parts Express, and you can get a very good FFT system with a, a good microphone. Now you have to learn how to use it. <laughs> okay, but there really just isn't any excuse why everyone isn't doing a science-based approach. Yep. Uh, but that that is the main, main line in the sand. Once, once you get a measurement system of whatever type, and there's a number of them on the market, then you can start actually doing some work and figuring out what the hell's going on with with the behavior, not only of the drivers, but the drivers in the box and how that works in the room, looking at polar behavior, uh, radiation information about what's happening. Um, and and then also along with that, but if you have the data though, maybe this will be helpful in, to your question is that something to keep in mind is that alone still isn't enough because guess what? Do you have the background to understand what any of that stuff means? Okay, so there, the engineering background helps a lot there, but you don't have to have that. You can learn it. Uh, but if you go read Link Winston, you, there's a book. Um, I've got it right there in the cabinet behind me. Uh, a book that, that Dr. Gettys did. If, if you read and actually really care about learning how this stuff works, 
then when you look at the data, you can start making some better dis, um, interpreting the data is in other words, this is the critical juncture of this stuff. Just having the data doesn't do anything much. Um, and again, that you get, the longer you do it, you get better at it. Absolutely. Um, right. Uh, even the really super smart guys, they still, I think would say that they're doing better work now than they did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. For sure. But I'm, so anyway, long story short, I'm a, I'm very adamant about that. I think if you, there's, there, I think way I, I may or may not differ from other designers is that I think there are different, um, let's just call it like a three-step process. There's a process that has to go on in the beginning. The first step um, involves measurement, but the first step is kind of more of a, a platform theory or a, pro, a platform strategy approach. And you know all about this. Um, is it going to be an electric drive car or is it going to be gas? Is it going to be a right. wagon wheel or is it going to be a rubber tire? Right. Um, the platform really is everything. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like this little dumb sounding analogy that a carbon fiber wagon wheel is still a wagon wheel. Okay. So however good your, your platform concept is really is all you have to work with the rest of all this technical stuff is really a matter of of um optimizing and making it manufacturable uh figuring out is this this assembly technique does it lend itself well to the kind of tooling that we would need is that cost effective uh does it skate in other words injection molding versus rotational molding if i'm mm -hmm. going to make three i'm going to do roto molding because i can make the damn mold myself Right. If I'm going to make injection molding, I'm, I'm be on scale. I may spend sixty thousand dollars on the molding tool. Right. So there's a ton of stuff that that kind of thing that goes on. If you're a real company, if you're playing around, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You just have to make one pair. Right. Um, but either way, whether it's a big company, a little company, cheap or expensive, the platform is the whole thing. So that's why I make that a separate category. Now the reason technical measurements are still relevant there is because how do you, um, in order to make a, a, in order to validate that your decision about your moving forward with your platform is a smart thing to do has to be validated technically. Right. You can't just say, I think it's going to work and then just start a company. So number one is you, is you come up with experience, you measure a lot of drivers and you come up with kind of this, what I just call a recipe. This tweeter works well with that woofer. This work, woofer, uh, I like the sound of it. Uh, this woofer gives me enough, let's say, bandwidth in the kind of size of a box that I want to produce. And those kinds of decisions um, are what you do in the first phase. And you validate all that stuff technically so that you can make an educated decision as to whether or not it makes sense to, say, go to the next step, which is, to, is the optimization and engineering step. Um, okay, so that, let's say you and I do that. We've got, we have, we're going to make an open baffle speaker. We've got, um, let's just take, let's say they're off the shelf drivers. We have this coax uh, upper unit. And we have this eminence base driver. So we build it, um, which helps again at the size. We're, that's one of the reasons we're so fast now. Uh, we try to be on Tesla time is uh, we we're vertically integrated now. If I have an idea, we can go in there on Saturday and I can have the guys program the CNC and we can make it and test it over the weekend. And by Sunday night, I can say, 
up or down on whether this platform has any, any future. Um, but uh, what was I saying? But anyway, so that's what you and I would do. We start this company. We have um, we have a good idea and we validate it. We've measured the drivers. We think this will work. It roughs out pretty good. You can definitely tell it's going to work pretty well. Um, but it's a long way from being production ready, production ready from a manufacturing standpoint. And it's a long ways from being prime time in terms of refinement uh, and quality of sound, you know, subjective related, you know, music related things rather. Um, so there's phase two, engineering. At that stage, I don't pay much attention to what it sounds like. Uh, and that's the bulk of the time. If, if, if we say there's make up a, a, a development period, but if we say six months, most of the time is actually that engineering phase, actually not, well, <laughs> at least 40% of it, meaning the bulk of the time is the optimization right. period, but we are getting better at that. And if we had a near field scanner, we could do it quicker. But with the methodology that we've developed, within a few months, we can usually take, if it's a good platform, we can get it in a very good, because we have a lot of experience. We kind of know what you can manufacture. We kind of know what things cost and blah, blah, blah. So. Um, but anyway, during that period, I'm not sitting around, you know, with, with my pipe and, you know, with a cigar and, and uh, listening to capacitor changes. I don't care anything about any of that stuff. What we're trying to do is uh, mold the performance, try to understand, A, what it's doing, understand the behavior of it, so that they, we could fine tune the behavior to meet a performance theoretical model. Uh, and I think every company might be different in that respect, but I know what I want it to do. So I've right. got to somehow get it there. Okay. And you, you really don't know how long that's going to take because some designs are harder to get to work. than you know, Some are easy, some are hard or whatever. Um, let's say it takes three months to get it to the point where it's like, you know, this is working, but I really don't know what it sounds like. Um, and at this point, this is where you tell me, but I, I think there may be, this is where there might be some differences in opinion about how speaker development works, because I have a feeling that a lot of companies kind of stop there. Uh, it measures great. Uh, uh, people like, these other people like the sound of it. We like the sound of it. And, it. and you just kind of put it out there and it's done. And if you're a really, really large company, you may kind of need to do that. If you're Clips and you've got you know, 10 different product lines and you've got to get all these speakers done. Um, this last step that I was going to describe, you may skip that step because you, if you're making a $500 speaker, you might not need to. In other words, if it measures well, it probably sounds good. Right. Uh, but in our world where you have my expectations along with our customers are quite sophisticated. If you look at the kind of people like Tom Schmidt, for example, since you know him, um, these guys have vast amounts of experience and know a lot about what speakers ought to sound like and have been around a long time and heard a lot of speakers. Well, guess what? Those kind of guys buy stuff from us. Tyson uh, from uh, Audio Circle. Everybody knows Tyson. He bought a pair of X3s. That's not by accident. So in other words, they're ex the kind of customer that we have has a, a level of expectation that means that I can't stop at the measurement phase. So that's when the art form starts. And that's where the listening to a piano at 7 a.m. every morning for first 
part of my life magically comes back into play because I'm trying to get I'm trying to get this engineering what I just call engineering platform yep. to sound like music instead of sound like sound. How do you do that? Don't ask me. Uh, you know, other than it's a skill that you develop over a long period of time. And that is one of the secret ingredients that we have of why people go to the, you know, thousand people go to a show like the one next week. And they always walk out of there going, man, that I don't, I not only like the sound of your speaker, but that's actually what I've been looking for all of this time. I've, why can't I, I, that's what they'll say. I'm frustrated that I never, ever have heard a speaker that I want, that I think that I know I want, but I don't know what it is. I just heard it. How do you do that? Well, to me, that third step, it it does start out with a good platform. Open Baffle gives me a huge leg up. Uh, I can do a mediocre job on the design of it. It still sounds better than a lot, if not most of the things that use the 20th century kind of platform. But but if you take a really good platform like this with this really good driver tweeter I'm talking about, and then you refine, you refine, you refine, and you get the you get the rightness factor on it to where you hear it and you go, that sounds right. I can't see that on the screens. Now, if you do an NSF um, profile and look at it, it, it has highly sophisticated predictive t- uh, ability. And if you look at that and it meets that predictive line uh, of what sounds good in a room, it'll sound good. But that doesn't still doesn't, that's still not what I'm looking for. It, I don't. I can't look at that curve and say it sounds right, like tonally and harmonically. Um, there's a. It's too complicated. If you just look at the resonant behavior of a piano discussion over, how how in the hell can you capture the complexity of what is happening with all of these different strings interacting? with all of this huge decay tales of information going on. But it, it's a celebration of, of human hearing, though. I can hear it. Well, let's let's yeah. talk about that a little bit in terms of what you are able to change, right? Because one would say, well, if it measures well, and you're saying that your third step is to satisfy Clayton Shaw's ears... What are you changing if if you've gotten to that third step where it measures what your expectation is, it performs on a mechanical in a mechanical way the way you expect it to, and electrically, right? Because that's an equally important. What mm-hmm. what parameters can you change now so it sounds to your ears more pleasing? An mm-hmm. example, please. Well, the direct answer is what can you change? They're very limited in what you can change because all you have is the LCR and, you know, the AC parameters. You can, if you change the inductor value, capacitor value, resistor value, and through doing that, you change things like uh, phase interaction, uh, roll-off rate, um, you know, slopes, uh, the point at which, you know, where on the frequency range are you handing off. It's not that you can't get the data most of the data you need out of a measurement system. It's just that I don't, there must be another dimension beyond it because I can hear it and I can't see it. That's all I'm saying. I'm not, I have, I'm all over the, the, the measurement thing. 
Um, but I think I know that there's another level beyond it. And I'll, I'll give you an example. And I, I'm not going to mention the company because I don't, it wouldn't be fair to, sure. I'm not, the idea is not to pick on them anyway. Um, I was in a four speaker AV comparison um, in the spring with two other, yeah, two other people that had a lot of experience. And the most, the most expensive speaker came in near to last. And everybody in the room had exact, because we didn't, we didn't say anything. After the fact, how would you rank them one through five? Um, there were only, in fact, our, if I remember right, we had the M3 Sapphire and the X5. And everybody initially, it looked like they were gonna rate, rank the X5 number one, the best sounding and the M3 number two. And there's these other ones that I won't mention. And they were all, you know, they're considered top flight. Sure. Uh, products that you can go out and buy. Um, a couple, well, no, one guy flipped it and said, well, I think I actually like the M3 better than the X5. Fair enough. But but the everything else was an also ran. There, it wasn't even, the, the third place was a distant third to the point where we didn't really care much for them particularly. Um, I'll take that back there. That's not true. The third place was a product that I think is incredibly well done product it's made in england called q acoustics they they make a floor standard speaker called uh, i think it's the concept 600 is the name of it um that was so good that i could almost even as an open baffle guy say i certainly would recommend it if you don't want open baffle great that's what i would buy so um that was a good speaker but the next to last place model nobody cared for at all Okay. And the interesting thing about that, a couple of interesting things about it was A, it was the most expensive speaker. And B, it was designed in the manner that you're that you're talking about. It was it represented the pinnacle of what is happening in, in R and D and research and and the understanding of not only human perception but uh, be loudspeaker behavior itself and loudspeaker behavior in rooms. Uh, and it was developed by this company and nobody liked it. It wasn't a bad speaker, but it was, it lacked so much interest and in, in engagement that you're like, can you just, can we just go to the next one? I mean, nobody cared. It was just like, um, and it measures beautifully. And I've seen the, in it, the scanner uh, profile on it. it looks great. You know, it's, it's, it's textbook. So I kind of turn it the other way around. It's like, you tell me why nobody likes a speaker that should be head and tails above uh, anything else. Uh, oh, so I, there's, I, there's other things going on besides just the way. Yeah, and I have a theory of that, and I don't think this is the time for me to provide that. However, I think it's important to ask this. If you change one of those parameters that you believe is the adds that flavor that you're looking for do you go back and measure it and if so you measure it and it's slightly worse measurement but you like the way it sounds do you make the executive decision to say i like the way it sounds so it might not measure as well but i like the way it sounds and implement that yeah that's a a, a very good question i think it, it's actually the answer is one of those depends answers it depends on the nature of the aberration or the change that you made uh, a good example would be if you liked it better but 
it created a, a 3 dB peak right where sharp, you know, like three to yeah. four kilohertz when you said sharp, you would say, I don't care whether I like it better or not. It could be some other per, something going on and that's not a good idea. Um, if it if it's something less drastic than that, than that if it um, or it's lower in frequency, let's say there's a, a broad change in response uh, by one or two dB at, at 500 hertz or 250 or whatever, or up real high, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I think it depends on the nature of the change. Um, yeah, I would be very uh, worried about something that looks like it's just not right, even though I like it. Okay. Uh, so that's why it's so tricky. That's why I think there's a there's a mixture of science and you know engineering and this listening art form and a pure objectivist approach would say, well, that's because your art form part of it is BS. You're just you're just hearing stuff that's not it's some artifact from something else. Well, okay, but my customers have speakers in living rooms, not in anechoic chambers and NFS right. chambers where you don't need an anechoic chamber. So this thing about getting the speaker to sound totally right in some kind of a regulated, um, not regulated, but an average room sure. is actually really important. Now you can say, well, there's enough predictive capability in the scanner to, to take care of, you don't need to worry about it. And I, again, I'm, I'm all fine with that. But yep. the, the reason, the problem right now for us and probably most manufacturers that are interested in the Clipple system is that if I send it out and get it measured on the Clipple NFS system and I see a problem or I see something I want to change, what am I supposed to do? Am I going to go back to the lab and make a little change and then ship it out there again and then see what happens and make a little? I need, if we don't buy one of these systems and have it set up permanently to where I could do an iterative improvement program uh, and see if I can correlate, okay, so this was second you know, version B, I like it better. Right. So you scan it again and then you go, okay, well, then you could kind of, it's more like a co-development thing to where you, just like you do with a regular measurement system. Absolutely. But without having it at our lab, I don't think that in and of itself, uh, I I can't solve the, I can't develop the product without it. So it's 120 or $140,000 right now. Uh, If it's like most other things, uh, it'll come down in price. If it could come down to say 20 grand or maybe I'll buy one. I think I would like to have one, um, but the idea of just sending it out a couple of times doesn't work for the development approach. From anyway, and that's the way I look at it. I think we could gain more in-depth information about what our speaker is doing. But let's just say it this way: if I don't like the sound of the speaker, I'm not selling it. That's that's just at some point I still have to be the gatekeeper on this stuff. And this Absolutely. is exactly what I'm saying. I've heard speakers that are designed according to this approach that you're talking about, and I didn't like them. You could say, well, you don't, that's just you. Well, nobody in the room liked it. So what, what, and everybody seems to like my approach, the way they sound. Um, So I think there's a certain amount of just like, let's just agree to agree or disagree to agree that we don't know everything. There is a dimension. If you want now, if you want good performance, that's enough. But if you want great performance to where you go, there sounds like there's a piano in there. I think you have to go. There is a dimension beyond that. That is, is a human perception thing that takes a lot of experience and understanding how some of these instruments actually sound. These the ones that generate a lot of complex sure. energy. 
campus. So anyway, that's my <laughs> thesis on that. But the good news is, is that's been working for us. Um, right. If you look at the market and what they're saying about our products, they're not they're not saying, well, yours are pretty good. But All these right. ones that were designed on the NSF are better. It, just the opposite is happening. So that just all that means is that there's more to it than what everybody's. But the problem is, is that if, if you're in one camp or the other that's polarized, if you're in the middle, kind of like I am, it's easier to navigate because I'm I just want to make the best sounding speaker. I don't care. I don't I'm not I don't have any dog in the hunt on any of these philosophical things. But if you're polarized, if you're either super subjectivist or super objectivist, right. it's really limits your range of possibilities because you're just like, well, the scanner said it's good just ship it. Go ahead, you know, but we're going to probably beat you because we are right now. That's exactly what's happening. We're winning right now. Have you thought about sending one, any of your models to someone like Aaron's Audio Corner just to get an idea of what it does on the NFS just for your information? Because unless you're, I don't believe you're measuring Right before Aaron bought the hundred thousand dollar Clipple NFS system, right? He did it the old fashioned way, right? Outside in his yard, spending eight hours measuring and maybe remeasuring, right? I mean, it really is an immense amount of work to to measure that way, especially iteratively, right? Where yeah. the Clipple does it while he's sleeping now, which is great. However, one of the drawbacks of using, say, maybe a Clio, and I'm not being critical, critical, thank you, is it takes so much time, and yet you probably don't even get a quarter of the data as you would from mm -hmm. a clipboard, right? And, yeah. it, and the reality is you just simply don't have that time to do it because you're running a business. Yeah, it I, no, I totally agree. Well, the answer to that is that, yeah, I think that's what I will do. Uh, okay. Because even though I can't use it to go forward to improve it, I can right. get a much better insight to where we are now. Right. Uh, if anything, it might be real useful. If everybody likes the sound of the M3, let's see if we can see that in the clip. Let's see if we can see why right. everybody likes the sound of it. So it works both directions. I think Information is information. We need as much information as we can get. Uh, the clipple is much better. Um, I would argue it, it can't be everything because I that, I can't hear data. I can see it, but I can't hear data. So I think anyway. Again, but when I say all this stuff, I got to reiterate is that I'm not talking about when we're talking good enough performance. Like it's you know this retailer is going to sound. I've got my customers' expectations are like they want magic. They want something to where they're like, I actually think there's an instrument in here. Now, if 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 Clipple, I bought one and that's really all I need in order to get there, like if I look at it matching the predictive data in the room that we want with that model, and it works exactly the same as what I came up with, then I, that would be the greatest news. I could just stop spending all this time um, working on it myself. Sure. I've spent my whole life working on this, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, um, cool. But I have yet to see that I'm seeing the opposite happen. I'm seeing that it's the best tool around, but it's a tool. Well, and everything is a, a tool. Let's be clear. Everything <laughs> is a tool. 
but that still doesn't tell me what it sounds like. It gives me a good indication. And but as a manufacturer, yeah, I want I want that data. So that's why we would okay. probably send the models to get a baseline. It's like, okay, now where are we? Um, but I don't see any way around the the fact unless now Andrew uh, Jones is, from what I understand, is looking into this and and. Um, about the viability or the usefulness of this himself, because he had 30 years of measurement experience at KEF and right. he's probably one of the leading people that knows about measurement. We'll see what he says about it, but um, I'm not convinced yet because I'm not hearing it. I'm not hearing speakers that sound better uh, than mine, for example. So I want to wait and see, but if it does, if it, if it is a better tool, I, I know it's a better tool, but um, I don't see any way around the idea that we eventually have to buy one. Sure. In order, to, if Understood. we're going to incorporate it into our development process. Understood. Let's get into the manufacturing. Spatial Audio currently manufactures at the chassis in-house, correct? Uh, that's correct. There are. It's also metal, you know. So we have. The nice thing is, and I, you know, this is of course, um, I think the right thing to do, and it's also the easiest for us is to have as many things subbed out that we need subbed out done right here in salt lake city as we can so so we have metal fabricators and we have companies that do uh, the, the company that paints our speakers um is nice because it's not just some paint shop it's actually the company that does all of the mill spec work for the uh there's an f-16 air force base called air, uh, hill air force base an hour and a half or something north of salt lake and they're the contractor for that. Um, so the, these people, it's all ISO, you know, and it, they know exactly what they're doing. So the beauty with that is when 50 baffles show up that are wrapped up in foam, we don't have to worry. When we unwrap it to build it, we already know it's going to be perfect. We don't have to do any incoming QC. Those are the kinds of things that matter to me. If, if you have to uh, go through every product that somebody sends you because they make mistakes, <laughs> we don't have time to do that. It's it's expensive and time and a waste of time. So it, you know this too. This is like from your industry. It's called driving back quality to the to the the supplier. That's right. So we try to keep refining the supply chain to where we don't have to do anything. Uh, so that the I mean we find occasional defects, but we don't. You really always do, no matter what. You always do, uh, and so what we do is we say if we can drive back the quality issues to the supplier, then. Plus, we have 100% QC testing and listening, then the likelihood that something's going to get through. Uh, and in speakers, it's, it's kind of really important because if it was a piece of furniture and you had a little defect somewhere, it might be acceptable. Um, it's because it's a visual thing. But in a speaker, let's say you have an out-of-spec capacitor and it changes the tonal balance of the speaker, that's not to be tolerated. So, um, so like we use VH Labs uh, VCAPs, uh, ODAM oil capacitors, and they're extremely expensive. Uh, a 15 microfarad cap is, I think our OEM cost in quantity is $193. Wow. Um, and I know a lot of your friends would just say, well, that's a stupid waste of money. Well, fine, don't use it. Uh, but we, um, one of the service they have, services they offer is not only cap matching, but, you know, pair matching, but down to 0.5% uh, matching. 
we pay extra for that. We don't want to have to worry about whether or not the caps are the same, because we know that that affects the imaging and sound staging, the spatial information. So you're not matching. You're not matching caps in house. You're relying yeah. on the manufacturer to, to, to right. get them to do it, and then you just pull out of a box and install them. Well, we'll, we'll think about why we would do it that way. Oh, I know exactly if, why. If, <laughs> well, if we did it, we would need a big box of them at one hundred ninety-three dollars right. a piece to be sifting around. And well, Absolutely. the manufacturer makes them, so they already have a giant queue of them. So let let them match them there. Um, you know what I mean? And so, and then we use um, Mills resistors, which is a military grade uh, non-inductive wire wound resistor. Uh, in my world at six bucks a piece, I, I don't think they're expensive, but most manufacturers freak out and they want these little Asian sand cast things that cost 15 cents. If you want to use them, go ahead. Um, but everything that's going into our product is the best that we, at least in, to us, what we think is the best we can buy almost without any regard to price that we obviously we won't put in an $800 Doolin capacitor. Um, but within the realm of what's, you know, in, in the real world, we're talking a very, very expensive crossover network. And I'm talking about a new M4 that costs four grand. It's not an $80,000 speaker. Right. Speakers at four grand have garbage crossovers in them usually. Uh, now you could say that's my opinion, but I'm just telling you my opinion. Uh, these little uh, parts they're using just aren't very good. They, they put them in there because you can't see them. Uh, so, and, and they make a, on a superficial level, you don't have another pair that has good parts in it. So you can't compare. You don't know what you're gaining or losing because you don't have anything else to compare it to. So everyone seems to do that, particularly in the sub $5,000 class. I understand why. That is a differentiator for us because here we have even our bottom of the line speaker has the, the VH Labs VCAP in it. Uh, it has WBT next gen connectors. Uh, oh, those are just jewelry. No, they're not. Uh, that thing's made like a BNC connector, the, the next gen things. We put those in there for a reason. They sound better. Um, and they're mechanically extremely good. Uh, they hold on to a spade connector, for example, and they don't get loose. There's all kinds of reasons why we spend a ton of money on these kinds of parts. Um, and if it doesn't make a difference, I don't spend the money. I don't just buy expensive stuff for no reason or whatever. But anyway, that's a sidetrack. But um, so you router your own baffles in house? Uh, yeah, we. I told you earlier. I think we um, in two thousand. The, at the end of 18, we were to the point in volume where we had a large third-party supplier making and painting in-house the baffles. Uh, the paint quality wasn't up to the standard I think we needed, but it was the kind of, it worked because it was all in-house. So they could just deliver us baffles, but it, it wasn't bad or anything. But they basically got to the point where they're like, dude, your, your uh, lead times, it kept growing, you know. Well, in three months, we can probably get you that big order. And like, we can't wait that long anymore. Um, so we made a tough decision because we were in a highly uh, risky phase of the business where we were becoming quite popular. But as you know, to fuel growth is very expensive. You, in right. order to make these leaps, these step leaps or, you know, step changes. Uh, okay, so we go, okay, let, let, we, we bought a mid-level router, you know, all in with everything we need was under $50,000. 
but we got control of our process. We can not only make any quantity we want uh, for that level of sales we had, but we could prototype quickly. We could make changes on the fly. We could um, not have to transport them. They're right there, in, you know, in the fabrication building. Let's go get them. Right. Um, and so that really made a huge difference. And that that is how we, and that coincided with the M3 Sapphire and the X, so the modern era, the Sapphire and the X5. We could tell already the M3 Sapphire was going to be a huge seller. So we bought a router and thank God we did, <laughs> you know, um, because we, we at one point were over 100 orders behind and we we're like, how are we going to make these things? And this is no advertising. We, I, I don't know that we've ever advertised, unless you count going to a show, <laughs> you know, as promotional. Um, but um, anyway, fast forward, um, that's fine. But we, we kind of wore the machine out and uh, cutting the Ultralam, that, that multi-layer front baffle material, the X5, is hard on uh, the spindle motors and the bits and everything. And machining, and the X5 became much more popular than we had ever imagined. At, at one point, it was sold just as many X5s as M3s. No idea. It's not, it hasn't even been reviewed by anybody. So this kind of tells you there's a viral effect happening with open baffle. But either way, um, thank God we had this router. We basically wore it out, and then it wasn't fast enough anymore. So we went from the re regular American-made mid-level thing and bought a big-ass, the state-of-the-art, a uh, machine that's German made called HOMAG, H-O-M-A-G. And it's like the real thing. It's all hardcore, you know, yep. big uh, 15 horsepower, state-of-the-art Benz motor spindle on it. It's like, holy crap, you know, the thing is, it's real out crap. of control how fast it is. Yeah, so it's industrial level. Um, uh, anyway, so now that was just recently. In other words, we used this, this mid-level router from, from the first of 19 when we got it up and running until this this summer, like in, in July, August timeframe, we sold it and brought this big home ag in and it took a while to get that thing up and running and learning how to use their interface and everything because it's really complicated compared to what we had. But once we did, we're realizing, man, we could probably make anywhere from four times to 10 times the amount of uh, baffles that we did before. But since they're glued together, there's a front and a back, it looks like one solid piece, but it, um, like if you look at an M4, it's actually two parts. We had to develop our own uh, gluing system that was so accurate that there was no seam issues, even after it's painted. And right. so it, it took quite a while to, to get uh, our capacity. So that's that. Anyway, that's the overall plan was like, look, these things, this M6 that's coming out is 3,500. It's insane how good it is. And it's, it's not entry level. It's not 1,500 right. bucks or something, but... You know, it's a small little cute speaker. It sounds amazing. Looks incredible. Um, what the hell are we going to do if we get 100 orders on this thing? So so that's why at the beginning of the year, we had this master plan, uh, Spatial 2.0, which was we're going to 4X our, our capacity on the fabrication side so that when it comes, we, you know, you have to do it ahead of time, right? Absolutely. Um, Okay, so we did this. So all through the year, so the whole mag is up and running in August, um, and we're producing everything that you're, that people are buying now is made on this thing. And it's also the finish on it, uh, the edge finish, sure. as you probably imagine, is so good that there's hardly any sanding needed. It's just been crazy. Um, so that that saves a lot of time too, labor costs. But 
Okay, you fast forward uh, in the last two months, in the kind of in this beginning of the fourth quarter, and we knew this in the beginning as part of our plan from our master, the 2.0 plan, but we said, okay, we, we're, we're tied up getting the fabrication uh, side of the facility 4X. We then have to immediately turn around and scale the assembly yep. and the materials handling. Okay, because up to then, I think we only had one, I think we had two or three of those giant, you know, the orange and green 25 foot, you know, the huge industrial. I think we only had two or three of those things and we, and we didn't have a forklift. So we had an electric lift, but it couldn't go any higher than about six feet. So the rest of it is just sitting there with the rails. And we're like, that's okay. When you're growing, there's all kinds of weird stuff, you know, when you're making transitions. So we thought, okay, what we're going to do is we lined all the warehouses floor to ceiling with these racks. We buy this brand, you know, this killer Toyota um, forklift. Just we totally did it the right way. Um, uh, because we're confident. We know the, the stuff's selling. We don't have to worry about the popularity of it. So anyway, we got the material handling thing under control so we can take large stacks of like MDF off of these big 18-wheelers uh, that were too heavy to lift um, with that electric lift we had and, and be able to store heavy things way up high in the air and, and start running it like a real warehouse sure. so that we could get our act together and really start doing high volume. So that so that's the material handling and warehousing storage is a whole thing in and of itself. Okay, then assembly um, kind of concurrently with that, setting up more workstations and cross-training more people. The, the theory like on the M4 and M6 is that everyone in the organization, uh, including the, the people that run the fabrication shop, have to know, have to be able to come over and build an M4 from the ground up, wiring and everything, and send it to QC so that we can adjust so that creates a flex force. So if we get overrun, because you know it, your sales vary in a specialty market like this. So if we get hammered, we don't have to hurry out because you can't just hire somebody else because they're not trained. So if you just train everybody in the organization to do all of the things, then we can draw on other people from other areas uh, if we get overrun. <laughs> and that seems to, to have worked. It's, it's new, but it's already working. And that includes me, which I'm just doing sales and marketing and things like this now. But if they get busy and I have to go down there, and empty the trash or build a pair of Xbox, I have to know how to do that. Uh, right. Because it's just balls to the wall all the time. We're, you know, again, with no advertising, it's just utter craziness. It's so busy. So that's good news, but it, it, um, but it's quite difficult um, to pull off it, when you're a small company. You Absolutely. Know? One of the most overlooked uh, procedures in a company, right, is selling is one thing, but producing and delivering a quality product as designed is very difficult and a lot harder than most people understand that are not near manufacturing. And scaling it is really You're difficult. You're right. Um, well, that's a, that's a good message for everyone to hear because, I like you, I don't think there's no reason why people would know that. Um, I wouldn't have if I wouldn't have worked at Seagate and saw this high high volume hard drive manufacturing. Uh, I wouldn't either. But I was surprised uh, how difficult, even knowing that, I could look at that CS2 and go, "Well, that looks pretty easy. Let's just right. make ten or twenty pairs of those." 
Well, once we got to the point where we were having to actually manufacture them on somewhat of a scale, you know, 20 pair a month or something like that, I already realized, hey, this is way harder than what I thought and way more expensive because now I have to rent this big building. Now I have to do this. Now I have to get all this stuff. Now I have to, you know, pay, you know, pay trade shows and all, you know, and I thought, holy crap, I'm not sure if I knew all this, I've, I'd ever even done it. But now it's amped up to the point where, um, you walk in there now and well, you've been to my, you've been there before. I have. You were, was that in 2018? I believe so. I think it was. I believe um, so. it's the same facility, but we've taken over additional buildings. Okay. Okay. But, but, um, but it's that same location. If you walked in there now, it's buzzing. There's people everywhere. There's mm -hmm. stuff coming in now. There's big UPS trucks. Uh, there's 18 wheelers in the back or forklifts flying or it's like, yeah. holy shit. I mean, it's a real manufacturing uh, facility. I didn't really expect it was going to get to that level. But what I'm realizing now is that this is the tip of the iceberg. I think this is actually the beginning of this next, this next phase is going to, you know, we're going to have to start hiring different kind of people. We're going to have to start hiring people that can do like office management and, hope to God we don't have to order, a, I mean, a hire an HR person or something. But in other words, um, we're changing gears into another level. Um, and it's not all fun. A lot of that kind of stuff is not why I'm in the business, but you just have to do it when you get bigger. Right. Which leads to the next question. How many employees make up Spatial Audio Labs? Um, a lot. I, I don't say an actual number because everybody draws conclusions about it that don't, uh, and the reason that's a problem is um, when you just see here a number, what that doesn't reflect is uh, what you're doing. Uh, we're so automated that we don't need near as many people as you might think you would in some other industries. Um, we're pushing buttons, <laughs> right. you know, so uh, let's just say less than 10, but we have less than 10 very skilled people that are running highly automated and sophisticated equipment. So, sure. and that's, that's by design. I, that's one of the things, just like I don't want a bunch of office people and sales people around. I don't want a bunch of warm bodies. Uh, we want as few people as we can get by with and use really good people, yep. you know, and they're all audio guys and they're all, they're all 31 years old or younger, which is another kind of strange thing. These guys are all just like crazy, uh, high energy, highly innovative young guys. The, the guy that does the packing is in mechanical engineering school at the University of Utah, just to give you an idea. So that's the kind of people we want around. We can use fewer of them and focus on talent and automation. And so that's the approach. Really quick, Clayton, I'd like for people to get it directly from you. And I know you post about this all the time models and the differences and why one person would choose one model over the other quickly if you would please <laughs> quicker than i've been explaining things um the the easy way to to say it is the theory is the same we have a platform like you and i talked about earlier we think it's a highly effective and innovative platform that is also quite easy to manufacture compared to most other so it, it works out well for commercial reasons but we have one platform strategy and we have two platforms underneath that, kind of a low and a high, but they both use the same theoretical model. Uh, there's a lot of crossover between them, but 
if I have a large, if I have a higher, a larger bill of materials, if I can allocate more money to the cost of the product, I can do more cool stuff. Sure. Right. So I can do more at nine thousand dollars than I can at three thousand. That's why there's two ranges. And so we have three M series. Now, once everybody sees these new M's that are coming onto the market, and then we have two um, X models and a third one coming. That's a secret, uh, but it's already out on Audio Circle. I saw this morning, but but the they have different capability levels. But the the important thing to know about them is they're the 3M models are all exactly the same. They're, this one, one isn't better than another. They are scaled by room matching, small, medium, large rooms. Because I found out that through a lot of this in-room testing effects that that was the single biggest factor is um, I can talk all day long. Oh, this M3 is going to be great and everything. But the guy says, yeah, but I have, my room's 10 by 12. Well, it still would work because open baffle doesn't generally sound boomy in small rooms. But it's not optimal. I can build an optimized 10 by 12 room speaker. So that's why we have the small, medium, large thing. They're, they're identical in quality and everything, drivers and everything, or, you know, the, only the size of the woofer, let's say, and the baffle size are different. But, but then the X um, takes it up quite a bit because the air motion transformer that's in the X is made by Bema in Spain. And that's a real hardcore uh, studio grade it, it, it's not like the, the um, commodity, you know, you see everybody using air motion transformer because the Dr. Hiles patent has been up for quite a while. But you look at, you inspect, there's two on the market. You inspect that Bema unit and you inspect the one that's made by Mundorf in Germany. And they're a whole different animal than the stuff you see in a Martin Logan or something at a store, you know? So when people say, well, I've, I've heard air motion transformer or those, Really? Is that, is that any good? Well, um, it's like anything else. It's like saying dome tweeters are all the same or something like that, you know. Uh, so we're using a an air motion unit that is again modified and has other machined aluminum parts on it. It's converted to dipole and a bunch of stuff. But basically, it's a, it's a Bema TPL 150H, which has a waveguide on it. And when we add our parts and modify it, our at high volume, a hundred piece unit, that's a $550 driver. Mm. Okay. Let that sink in. When you see top of the line, $300,000 speakers are yep. using $250 soft dome tweeters. So that's one of the, one of the many advantages to um, open baffle is that we can put more of the money into hardcore drivers because we're not spending it all on the cabinet. So here's a speaker that's seven grand that has a crazy, you know, one of the best, if not the best tweeter in the world in it. Well, hello. I mean, that's that's why it's like, OK, at that price range, I can do all kinds of plus it's a three way speaker. It's not a two way. We can do more with that. We can optimize mid range speed and resolution and polar uh, response by driver diameter and so forth. And then in the case of the ones that are on the market, uh, they are the X3, X5. They're self powered in the base range and there's some. We're using DSP with a Hypex in-core module so that we can do precision integration between the subwoofer and the mid-range driver instead of just using brute. Because we get down around 100 hertz, passive filters are, are not very, you know, they're not particularly inviting. They're, they're huge and they're, you know, lots of insertion loss and stuff like that. So a lot better to do it actively uh, if you can. And so we, the Hypex fits right in the speaker too. That's one of the 
I think we're real sensitive to lifestyle and, and making things look nice and easy to operate. So here's a speaker that you it's powered uh, in the base section, um, but you just plug in a power cord. There's nothing you don't do anything else. And there's a volume control for the base level. So the customer doesn't have to go through some technical exercise to figure out how to tune it and hook it up and do those. And that's the way I like it. I, I want it to be kind of as transparent as possible that way. So it's not any harder to use than the M-Series, but it has benefits that we can't afford to put into the price range of the M-Series. Um, now, the X, the new X, I won't tell you what it's called, but the new, this new secret one that's going to show up, be unleashed at the, uh, the Capitol Audio Fest, isn't it, about two weeks, I think, from now. Which this um, won't be out before then. So if you want to say what it is and explain. Oh, okay, yeah. It's called, yeah, so there's a, there's a third X, so it's called the X4. Okay. Um, and it is a kind of a cross between an M4 and an X5, but it's passive. So it's the per first passive X model. And it also uses a new styling uh, shift that we're making that you can see in the M4 and M6 where it has radius edges. All, only this is way more hardcore. This is like three inches thick. The chassis weighs about 80 or 90 pounds. Wow. And um, but it's an X. It has the it has the Bema in it. There's there's never any quality difference between right. the models. They all use the same tweeter and boat, you know, in their respective model series. So the X4 is just like for everybody else. It's not, you know, I don't really want a powered speaker. I, fine. I mean, here, here here's a product that'll blow your mind. And it's we don't know what the pricing is. We will buy the show, hopefully. So maybe by the time people hear this, but the X5 is seventy five hundred with isoacoustics Gaia feet on it. So this will be a similar, it costs a similar amount to make. So it's not about like trying to have different meat pr price points. It's just, you know, whatever it costs, it's gonna cost a similar amount, but it's a really interesting product and it looks absolutely fantastic. I, and it, at least I do and everybody around the facility thinks. So that's kind of, um, that. but that for the most part sets, anticipating maybe your next question, that sets our, our agenda basically is finalized. I think there, we may have a next generation X3 or something at some point in the future that um, if we will see what happens, but for the most part, the product line should be stable and stay the same for five to 10 years. I think, you know what I mean? And sure. it's important at the scale we're at now, we can't be uh, introducing things and drop, we, we got to settle it. And uh, that's, by the time the X4 hits the market, the M4 is already on the market. These six speakers will represent what we're about. We could produce a, we get a lot of calls for, okay, if you could do this at seven grand, what could you do for 50 or 25 or whatever? Right. You know, and that's a great question. Um, and I think about it kind of from time to time, you know, I mean, it comes up in my mind, like, you know, what could we do if we, well, first of all, I'd make the entire chassis out of machined uh, bronze um, because we've already tested that and it sounds a lot better than aluminum and, and a lot better than MDF because the self-damping is just, it just sounds way better, but it's really expensive, particularly in flat sheet. Uh, bearing bronze is pretty affordable in, in, in rod shapes. But anyway, but we've done it before. We tested it in the, in the 90s and... Uh, so there are things that I could do that would make immediately noticeable improvements, but you would have that effect. You'd go from seven grand to just suddenly there'd be multiples of pricing cost difference. It would just get crazy. But the reason I'm at this point not 
planning to do a flagship model is that in the honest answer when they, you know, these guys ask me about that a flagship thing, I don't know how to make a speaker sound any better than an X5 or X3. Uh, there needs to be some kind of new technology come out or something that changes the toolkit that I have to work with. I, I just don't know what I would do. So, and I try to keep the ego part out of it. They say, well, yeah, but you need a, you need a, a halo speaker. So that you'll be thought of as like a big shot in you know, the company. I don't give a crap about that. It's like, you know, we're trying to make, we're trying to push the performance envelope further and further as we learn more. Right. That's our job. That's our job to do that. Not to make the most expensive speaker, to make the best speaker that people can actually buy. I mean, so you know what I mean? Uh, yes, absolutely. In, in, fact, in fact, if a speaker is a hundred grand and it doesn't blow your mind, then you've got to figure you right. can almost stumble through it and get good sound if you put enough money at throw it thrown at it. But it's yep. a, and you know this too, I'm sure from being in manufacturing, the lower the price gets, the harder it gets to get the performance you want because your your bill of materials just gets so limited. Andrew, right. had, look what the guy's done. Where speakers sell for 290 bucks for a pair. Yep. Now that's Chinese made and all that stuff. But even then, sure, how does it sound that good when you have basically no money to put into it? So I think it's easier as I go up the chain because I, I can put in these state-of-the-art uh, drivers like that AMT. Um, but what do you do at 3000 How are you going to make a speaker sound better than everybody if you don't have a big right. bill of materials? So, Clayton, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have or that you would like to share? I I, I should have thought of that ahead of time, but I let me just, one that comes to mind. Please. Two, let me, two that come to mind. One is support American manufacturers. Uh, and I mean that in a way that you don't always hear it. What I really mean is um, we're all people, you and me, are, we're all audiophiles. We're not some megalithic giant company like should I buy? No, we're all just, we're all in the same group. Okay, so let's support each other. And this is where most of the innovation is coming from anyway. So there's some motivation to buy, I think, from smaller companies. Look at Linear Tube Audio. For example, or shit audio. There's all kinds of cool companies. What you don't see big corporate companies with that kind of innovation. So I think supporting uh, innovative American companies uh, and getting to know them, uh, getting building a relationship, that's part of the fun of being an audiophile. I think a lot of my customers tell me that they say the biggest fun I get out of it is just knowing the the people who make the products and. Uh, right. You know, and they'll say, I know Don Sachs personally, you know, or something. And I just, they're just tickled to death that they they know the or Ralph Karsten, you know, atmosphere or whoever it is, Paul McGowan. Uh, and I agree. I think that's a lot of fun. When I buy a company from a big internet or a product from a big international company, it, it's not the same experience. Um, now, secondly, is this thing about not without getting into the uh, like, Maybe the worst thing you could call it is China bashing or something like, well, it's, don't buy it. And I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is that if you make a decision, and this is just my opinion, it's not a political opinion. It's just I've seen this happen. Uh, the real world effect is, is that if you make the decision, you go, the better DA converter that I think I want is made in China versus the one over here. And you don't care at all or you only care about yourself and you buy the one that's Asian, 
There's nothing technically wrong with that, but just get real. Uh, the company that you that you would have bought it from that's in the U.S. very well might go out of business. This is exactly hap this is happening right now in real time. Companies are going out of business because, particularly in electronics, Asians are really doing an incredible uh, job. I mean, you look at Orinder and this new uh, Rose Audio and Kinky Studio, and there's some incredible electronics coming out of Asia. And there's nothing, I'm not saying don't buy them. I'm just saying, think about what it does uh, to our little circle of us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, then the second, the second thing I would say is let's try to uh, minimize the, the um, toxicity of the polarized views on objectivism and subjectivism and other things, tubes versus solid state, whatever it is. It's just, it's supposed to be a hobby. It's fun. It's music. Do we really need to, the people that are on the fringes, um, it's irritating because it's just, it's like, don't worry about it. If, if, if you, if you believe that, just exercise what you believe, but you don't, you don't need to treat it like a religion where you have to pound me over the head with it. <laughs> I don't care what you believe, but you know, just, just, let's just all have fun and enjoy music and migrate whichever direction is working for you and kind of keep the toxicity out of it. And uh, I think that's just healthier for our group because I think people that come in from the outside commonly say, like millennials will say, well, yeah, I checked into that and God damn, that was toxic, man. You guys are all arguing with each other and can't figure out, oh, you know, I hate class B D because classic. Well, you know, it's like, well, just buy whatever you like. What's the big, right. what's the big deal? You know, so that's, that. I wish there was less uh, confrontational sort of feel about it. Great message. And unfortunately, um, it's the <laughs> blessing and the curse of social media and the internet, right? <laughs> With that said, everybody go visit spatialaudiolab.com. And he, meaning Clayton, has a circle at audiocircle.com. True. Which yeah. Clayton is active on. Uh, usually within 24 hours, you'll get a message back from what I see. And certainly, uh, Clayton, what shows do you have coming up where people can physically go listen to your speakers at? Well, they are starting up again. And uh, I think the um, Capital Audio Fest is the next one. And they were smart because their whole focus was on safety and making people feel like if it's safe, safe, they'll come. And if it, they don't feel like it is, they probably won't show up. And uh, and I think they, they they were really smart how they handled that. Plus, everybody loves that show anyway. That's just kind of the most fun show. Um, that one is, it's November 4th or 5th, I guess is what the Friday it starts on. So that's coming, well, like you said, that's already going to be over by the time this right. video comes out. So the next one is another really fun show that's new. It's only, I think, two or three years under the belt, which is the one in Tampa called the Florida Audio Expo, which is, uh, we just call it Flax, the Flax show. Um, very similar to the to the Cap show. A lot of fun. Um, it's worth the money just to get a plane ticket. Just just go and stop like ruminating on whether to go to a show. Just get on a plane and go down there. It's hard to have more fun than you can have at a show, particularly if it's your first time. Uh, so that's the first the next show after you see this. Um, and it's the first week of February, I'm pretty sure. And then. After that, I think immediately Expona comes up in, um, you know, in uh, April, and right 
around that time, excuse me, uh, Munich uh, happens, uh, we have European distribution. So uh, I don't know if I'll go to Munich this year, but you know, that, that will uh, be it. That's the biggest show in the English speaking world or the Western world rather. And that, that'll, that's a wake up call because you think audiophilism is small and you get there and you're like, last time I was there, there were 170 magazines there. And there were 20, I think 23 or 27,000 people there. It's hard to believe. And oh my God, you're like, okay, this industry is just fine. It, it, the US <laughs> is the one that's having the problem with this. Yeah, and the ones in China are even bigger. The one at Beijing show, I think there's 30 something, 30 or 40,000 audio files. Oh. So anyway, shows are great. Uh, those are the two coming up. After that, I don't know. I think in the following fall, it'll be a normal schedule. We have this new super cool hopefully show uh in seattle <clears throat> um that'll be coming up and rocky mountain is now gone permanently but what else would there be uh anyway we'll we'll have that on our website but yeah for, for now just focus on the trying to get to that flax show in uh, tampa in february wonderful thank you so much for your incredible amount of time and uh backstory it's so great to actually hear it because i never have I appreciate Well, thanks. Yeah. Hopefully I didn't over, I have a tendency to over talk forever, but yeah, it's good to just get out, you know, what the history is just so it's on record, but great. Uh, I appreciate your, your uh, invitation and uh, your generosity. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Clayton. Bye. We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason.